Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, where we discuss current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of all the latest news from China in only a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or at the website at subchina.com. SubChina offers uncensored reporting from and about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the U.S.-China trade war to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We are sure that you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm in Washington, D.C. to record a batch of pre-holiday shows. Joining me from fabled Goldcorn Holler in Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy the Grinch Goldcorn, a man with a heart two sizes small who is leading the war on Christmas, and damn it, it's his right now as an American citizen. Welcome to America, Jeremy. <laughs> Happy Festivus. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Offer our listeners some more of that grinchy atheistic holiday cheer. <laughs> bah, humbug. On with the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, today on the show, we are very pleased to have two former ambassadors to the People's Republic of China. David Mulroney served as Canadian ambassador to China from 2009 to 2012 during the prime ministership of Stephen Harper. And Jorge Guajardo served as Mexican ambassador to China from 2007 to 2013 during the presidency of Felipe Calderon and during the first six months of Peña Nieto. So they were both in China during what many may, well, many, I think, believe, uh, we all think is a very important period of transition in China, the years leading up to Xi Jinping's assumption of the general secretaryship of the Chinese Communist Party and the presidency of the People's Republic of China. We are going to coax some good stories out of these two uh, from uh, their years there. So uh, welcome to the show, both of you, Jorge and David. Thank you, Kaiser. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to be with you, Kaiser. Let's jump right in and start by talking about your time in China. As Kaiser said, those were very eventful years. You were both there. Jorge, you were there for the Tibet riots, the earthquake, the Olympics, the financial crisis. And David, you arrived for the aftermath of the financial crisis and perhaps in time for the Xinjiang uprising. And you were both there for the dramatic events of 2012, Wang Lijun's attempted defection and the downfall of Bo Lai, and much else that happened or was rumored to have happened that year. In other words, you both, both had the misfortune to live in very interesting times indeed. Um, <laughs> but... What were the major diplomatic issues that demanded your attention specifically on behalf of Mexico and Canada when you were both respectively serving as ambassadors in China? If I may start, yeah, please. Uh, three things come to mind, Jeremy, uh, that were the main diplomatic issues when I was uh, Mexico's ambassador to China. One was the H1N1 uh, flu epidemic, mm, which oh, began yeah. in Mexico and which uh, China reacted in a rather harsh way and created a big uh, diplomatic incident. They started rounding up uh, uh, everybody who had a Mexican passport in China, whether they had been in Mexico or not. Oh, I forgot uh, about and that. And just uh, putting them on quarantine, and it was a huge issue. They closed their consulates in Mexico. They canceled their direct flights. It was just a huge overreaction that just uh, threw the relations back several decades. So, so that was one big issue. Uh, another big issue while I was there was, uh, I, I remember Liu Xiaobo being awarded the Nobel uh, Peace Prize yeah. at a time when, by cheer luck, my foreign minister was the only foreign official in town. 
And of course, she was uh, scheduled to have a press conference and that was going to be the key question. So that was a big issue. And finally, and the always uh, classic one is my president meeting with the Dalai Lama. Oh. Uh, which as the uh, Chinese reminded me on many occasions, it was the first time that the president of a developing country was meeting with the Dalai Lama. It was a big issue. So those were the three... Uh, no small issues that uh, probably most form my six years in China. Can you remind us of the dates of that? So when was the H1N1 crisis? The H1N1 uh, was 2009. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I remember exactly of the H1N1. It was immediately after Xi Jinping was uh, named vice president. Mm. And his first trip abroad as vice president or designated successor was to Mexico. Yes. And I accompanied right. him. And was that he where he gave that um, uh, speech that, where he said uh, foreigners have uh, eaten too much Chibala, and sat around yeah. and Chibala chung and they shouldn't uh, order China <laughs> around? That's exactly when he said that. And that was what I was referring to because uh, it was interpreted as if he was addressing Mexicans when he said that. So I remember writing, uh, and Newsweek had a big article on how uh, Xi Jinping uh, had lectured Mexico on how to or how not to treat China. And I remember writing a letter to the editor of Newsweek uh, saying, no, 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 that was not uh, addressed to Mexico. In fact, our relations couldn't be better. That letter was published, I think, the day of H1N1 <laughs> crisis, and it all went downhill from there. So that was 2009. Uh, Liu Xiaobo was 2008, think, yeah, yeah. and the Dalai Lama was 2012. My gosh, what an eventful time for you there! Uh, what about you, David? What were some of the highlights of your of your uh, your stay? I mean, you you've actually had a long diplomatic career in China, but just just the ambassadorship. Let's talk about first. So uh, the the big issue for me um, when I got there in 2009, and, and uh, shout out to Jorge, who is a neighbor and a good friend, and was a good friend to all incoming ambassadors, and I really yes, enjoyed yes. his insights and his friendship. Um, my specific challenge was that um, we were in the midst of a Prime Minister Harper deep freeze. Uh, Harper is a conservative. He followed the liberals, and unlike the liberals, you know, he, the, the conservatives of the Stephen Harper era were a little bit like the Republicans of, you know, the early part of, of this century. I mean, they weren't like their uh, predecessors. The biparty consensus on China between the liberals and conservatives had broken down. And he was tremendously um, distrustful of, of, of the Chinese, um, worried that um, Canada had become too close to China. He didn't go to the Olympics, which was considered a, a slight um, and the, the Chinese were uh, very concerned. They said, you're not like your, pre your predecessor. Uh, can't, you don't get us. Um, I heard the same line from all of the ministers that I called on. We were in, in, in the deep freeze. But as, as Jorge says, it was also uh, the time of the economic crisis. And, and China was seen to be you know, the, the rising tide that was lifting many boats, including the Canadian boat. So Harper was warming up. And he he made a visit in 2009, just around the time of the Obama, first Obama visit, that was really a step in, in putting the relationship on the right track. The specific irritant for Harper was the fate of a Canadian, a Mr. Chalil, uh, who lived in Hamilton, Ontario, but was of Uyghur origin, who had, had been picked up in Uzbekistan and flown into China uh, in, into uh, trial and detention and um, the Chinese said, well, you know, he's not a Canadian. We think he's Chinese because uh, he didn't use a Canadian passport. We said he didn't use a Canadian passport because you, you spirited him into the country from Uzbekistan. But Harper felt that the foreign ministry, of which I was a part, 
had been so respectful of China that they hadn't done everything they could for him. And I remember speaking to him about that and, and you know, saying I, I would do my, my best to, to get out and see his family, to see if we could get better conditions for him. And that, that's something I did certainly before Harper arrived. The other really significant irritant, and it had been an irritant for 10 years, was the presence in Vancouver of a man named Lai Changxing, who was yes, a financial fugitive. Um, he escaped, got into Canada uh, a couple of steps ahead of the security uh, services and um, was scared into the refugee system in Canada by um, a clandestine uh, delegation. A, a, a bunch of Chinese security officials, you know, pretended to be part of a trade mission, went to see him and so scared him that he, he went into the refugee system. And the Chinese then said, well, you know, send him, send him home on the next plane. And we said, no, he's in the refugee determination system. We don't think he's a uh, a genuine refugee, but we have to make our case to a judge in Canada, and it's the judge who decides. That took 10 years, and um, with incredible, incredible um, consequences for the relationship, shouting by a very senior Chinese leaders, a great frustration, and it only got solved towards the end of my time. And um, it, when it was solved, I remember we, we put the judge's decision up on, on our Weibo. It got taken down right away, but we put it up again and it, it, it stayed there for some time. So it was, um, uh, we, we got out of the, deep, the Harper Deep Freeze, things warmed up um, considerably, um, sometimes by design, sometimes by, ch by chance. But it was also a time, I remember, when dealing with the Chinese had become different. In the past, if there was a, a difficult decision or a tough negotiation, even if you came out on the short end, the Chinese would leave you something, right? You didn't walk away from the table right. empty-handed. That changed, and I saw it change uh, on my, my visit as ambassador, where it was zero-sum, right? They were going to walk away with everything and leave you with nothing. And um, they were all, it was also a time when they could be much uh, more blunt in public, they were always blunt in private, much more blunt in public than they had been in the past. So much mm. less concerned about retaining smaller countries as friends. When, when do you date the start of that uh, uh, change, David? Well, I had been dealing, uh, I date the start of that from early in, in this century. I was the, uh, running the Asia branch in the foreign ministry from about 2001 on, and I began to see that difference. I remember once getting a call at home at about midnight, and they said, we need to speak to the foreign minister at seven tomorrow morning. And I said, uh, I'd really rather not call him tonight at seven in the morning. Can we, is there some other way of setting up this call? Because generally you give people lead. And they said, well, we're a P5 country. You know, we're, you know, we're members of the Security Council. And I'd never heard the Chinese speak like that. And generally, if you are a <laughs> P5 country, you don't need to remind people that you are one. But there was a, an edge to China, a sense of having arrived and not quite knowing how to behave when you've arrived that I hadn't seen before. What I've always loved about China is the tremendous pragmatism of people at the working level. You can have a really difficult d discussion, you can be at loggerheads, but in the end, they'll find a way and you'll find a way to get through. I didn't see as much of that on my, my final posting. Hmm. We will talk about that. Uh, it's interesting that you talk about two extradition-related cases uh, related to Canadians and Chinese. It's sort of a plus échange, plus même chose kind of thing. Right? Exactly. Maybe this is a, a timely time to remind people uh, that Canada isn't the only uh, country <laughs> that has uh, extradited. Anyway, uh, I flicked at the fact that you had just talked about your earlier postings. Uh, David, you had a, a 
quite a bit of, of experience as a career diplomat with China. Uh, so let's talk about your experience. But first, I want to ask Jorge about his, how much experience he had had with China prior to his assignment to Beijing, because I think it, it, it contrasts pretty strongly with yours. Uh, yes, uh, I had no experience in China. Hmm. Uh, I was a political appointee. I was consul general in Austin, Texas, uh, which of course is not a <laughs> typical place uh, yeah. uh, somebody then moves on to China for. But uh, the reason I was sent uh, to China as ambassador is on the understanding that my uh, field was mostly in commercial business. Uh, and the idea was to go and look for opportunities, for business opportunities, for Mexican exports in China, for Chinese investment in Mexico. And that's something I'd like to highlight. Uh, Mexico's relationship with China is mostly commercial. It's mostly economic. I mean, we are not, a, I mean, we don't have a security uh, dialogue or we are not uh, in that Field, we're mostly a commercial relationship. So the idea was to to send an ambassador that could uh, speak that language and look for uh, opportunities. I spent six years there and failed drastically in finding any single opportunity. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! Uh, so well, you, it was baptism by fire then. I mean, you, you really were thrown in. How did you come up to speed on China? I mean, because these days you're very conversant. Well, well thank you. No, well, I, I read a lot. And I, and I did uh, read as much as I could uh, get a hold of on, on China. I, of course, as soon as I arrived in China, I started visiting uh, with most of my colleagues, sort of uh, getting their ideas. I started traveling, uh, getting, I visited every single province in China, uh, several of them many times so it was literally trial by fire and just reading obsessively everything i could get uh, my hands on uh, on china and it helped that old blog dan way was pretty good i remember exactly <laughs> dan way i've been following it since yeah <laughs> That's that's great. And okay, what about you, David? Uh, like I said, you you had a career in diplomacy. Can you talk about your own experiences? Sure. I I started up. My first posting was in Korea at a really um, interesting and and very difficult time. Uh, the time of the shooting down of uh, Cal 007, the murder the by by bombing of of half the Korean cabinet at a, the Martyr Shrine in Rangoon. It was just a, a, a really eventful time in, in Korean history. Then I, I, I studied Chinese briefly at the Canadian Forces Language School and went out to reopen our consulate general in Shanghai in the mid-1980s. We, uh, we rented four houses in the suburbs out by the airport, by Hongqiao Airport. The fourth was the consulate general. The other three were the homes of the three Canadians. We'd have consular cases showing up at my door on Saturday and Sunday. Um, but we, we gradually you know, reestablished our presence um, in, in East China. It was interesting, Jiang Zemin was the mayor of Shanghai in those days, and I got to meet oh, him wow. a number of times way back then. Uh, then I uh, did a lot of work in the East Asia section uh, of our foreign affairs department. Uh, I was a, a desk officer during uh, Tiananmen, uh, and gradually I, I ultimately became the assistant deputy minister running that branch and had a lot to do with Chinese ambassadors, including uh, an incident where uh, the Chinese consul general in Toronto attacked uh, a Canadian Falun Gong supporter <coughs> in the pages of the Toronto Star, the newspaper, and the Chinese and he, he got sued. And the Chinese came to see me and said, well, you know, you, he, he's got diplomatic immunity. And I said, he's got consular immunity, which isn't the same thing. And again, a judge decides if this particular activity was within the ambit of his consular function. And the judge decided it wasn't. And that led to a, a, a red-faced ambassador shouting at me in my office, but ultimately the departure of the consul general one step ahead of the, the lawsuit. I then 
I worked in a, a, a number of uh, areas related to East Asia. I traveled to China with uh, Prime Ministers Kretchen and Martin, who were liberals, and uh, ultimately Harper. Uh, and um, I also ran Canada's unofficial office in Taiwan for three years, in the three years when the uh, DPP defeated the Kuomintang and, and uh, established a, a kind of a new era in, in Taiwan. That, that shaped in the, in the my outlook on China a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, um, well. and China was the end of my diplomatic career. It was a wonderful posting in, in many respects, but a, um, it was a, a, a tough job uh, many days. I bet. <laughs> yeah, right. Some of the things that you said earlier, David, I mean, they, it reminds me of a speech. I just have it in front of me right now. Uh, Chaz Freeman, who we interviewed on the show not too long ago, uh, was talking about some of these same things, the, the sort of humility, the lack of hubris, the pragmatism that used to characterize people. Let me read a little uh, piece I highlighted from it. Chaz said, 40 years ago, Beijing was diffident, not hubristic, but it was remarkably good at making tough choices. It also had the diplomatic skill to enlist the support of the outside world for its peaceful development. Perhaps it is impertinent for a foreigner to ask whether this is still the case. Still, once when we were arguing, Deng Xiaoping asked me what youth foreigners were. His answer to his own question was that we foreigners would tell him what we thought, not what he wanted to hear. I really contrast that with what's happening now. Today, you know, Beijing wants to hear very little of what the foreigners have to say. What... Jorge, and, and uh, you were both there in this pivotal period. What in your mind has really changed? And uh, I, David, you've told me when you thought this was quite noticeable, and, and this is sort of, you've marked it a little earlier than most people would in the, at the turn of the last century in 2000, 2001. I know that that was, sort of, that was before September 11th, and there was maybe a respite from that after some, September 11th. But yeah, I can, I can see dating it to that too. But what about you, Jorge? What, what? I, I remember... A... So I arrived in June 2007. And, and one of the things uh, you are very quickly subjected to or submitted to is a lot of uh, media requests uh, for interviews. And they're usually, as you know, uh, state media organizations. And of course, uh, you, you are a new ambassador, so you want to talk and reach as many Chinese as possible, so you entertain them. And they ask all these uh, soft questions. You know, it's always a, a friendly interview that would always end with the same question. What can China learn from Mexico? And you'd, of course, demur and say, well, nothing, of course. I mean, we're not here to to teach any lessons, quite the contrary, you know. And, About and cooking. I, <laughs> right. really no, but I, I remember <laughs> after 2008, after the financial crisis, that when I took those interviews, that changed to what can Mexico learn from China? Hmm, Wow. Remarkable. And it was very noticeable that every single interview would be, what can Mexico learn from China? And it was the same answer. Well, no, nothing. I mean, uh, I mean, we, we're not here to learn or to teach. I mean, we're here conducting uh, relations. And, uh, but, but that was a change I noticed, uh, and it was all around uh, the financial crisis in 2008. Fascinating. David and Jorge, uh, clearly things are very different now than they were uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and uh, David, you're dating the, the change uh, in attitude, uh, as Kaiser said, to a little earlier than uh, most people do. It's generally the financial crisis and the Olympics um, that I hear. Uh, but I'm curious what your experience has been at, not at the most senior levels of government, uh, but in dealings with your counterparts at the foreign ministry, for instance, or among those many officials who staff the party bureaucracy, who run sections in the ministries. Some of them are Kennedy School or LSE graduates and are quite cosmopolitan. Um, 
by analogy, I, I imagine that in Washington, you know, not everybody is a Trump supporter, that many of the U.S. government ag agencies and departments <laughs> are staffed by, you know, normal people and that there's a certain amount of continuity in the way that one would interact with them. Is that the case at all in China or has this um, aggressive new attitude, uh, is it from top to bottom? I, I guess I'd say, you know, if you, you're in Ottawa, you'll find that the most hated department in town is foreign affairs. Um, it, we're seen not to get the you know Canadian perspectives to be uh, haughty and supercilious. Uh, the same thing's true in China. Uh, I had many good working level contacts in relevant ministries. So um, the agriculture people, the people who looked at quarantine issues and could block or open the the doorway for Canadian products. I remember endless. Uh, conversations about uh, the arrival of uh, two pandas uh, to the zoo in Toronto. <laughs> this was something I would get regular calls from Ottawa. This was of great political significance. And in this, in this case, the problem was really the Canadian zoos who kept misunderstanding what the Chinese were saying. But we had, uh, as a key interlocutor, a woman who had um, done her, um, her degree, her veterinary degree at the University of Guelph in Ontario. And I could call her up and, and say, you know, Madam Wong, you know, we clearly didn't get get the message. Can you help me to uh, distill it? And she'd say, yeah, I could tell those folks didn't understand us. What I really mean is this. And, you know, step by step, we, we got the deal done. And I, I generally found that I could have someone like that in all of the key ministries that I was dealing with. And it helped when they'd gone to school in Canada, for example. Right. But um, that wasn't always the case in the foreign ministry. What I kind of admired and feared and loathed about the foreign ministry all at the same time was, and something that the Chinese are very good at, they can be extremely friendly and um, you know very affable dinner companions. But when I get called in at night uh, because the Dalai Lama was coming to Canada, those same people put the visors down and could be extremely tough with me. They had a way of personalizing the relationship sometimes and then being ruthlessly professional. And they're, so I've got to say, while I don't always admire the Chinese foreign ministry, they're very good at, in that respect. They get the job done. It sounds like Americans to me. <laughs> David, I don't know if, if this uh, applies to your experience with the foreign ministry, but uh, I remember when I was summoned uh, to the foreign ministry, usually uh, when they were upset about something, Uh, first of all, the thing that would change is that instead of uh, addressing me in Spanish, as they would usually do, they would speak to me in Chinese uh, with a translator. And evidently, they were uh, addressing the microphones in the room to make sure that they delivered the message in the harshest uh, tone possible. And then on the way out, as they walked you to your car, they would sort of smile and say, of course, you know, it's all good and start talking to you about future plans. And by the way, and we're good. So, so they sort of told you uh, it's all going to be good. That did start changing uh, towards the end uh, in which you didn't get that follow-up on the way to the car. But I'll tell you when, where I did find a, a different version, which was in the provinces. So I remember having very, very long conversations uh, with party secretaries like Hu Shunhua, uh -huh. uh, Wang Yang, even Bo Lai before his arrest. And they <laughs> would really go out on a limb and make a point that they understood you contrary to what Beijing was saying and that they understood your concern. And I never really 
understood if that was something that Beijing was coordinating with them and, and asking them to relay that message or if they were going out on a limb. But but it was a different message than the one you'd get from Beijing. Oh, that's fascinating. That's really fascinating. I, I did find that. And one of the things that I would do is, you know, when we had a sensitive case, a Canadian in detention, or in one case, it was the the partner of a Canadian. Uh, the woman was Canadian. Her partner was was Chinese, but he had been uh, beaten up. Uh, the the allegation from the police was that he had dragged five police officers to the one part of the police station where there was no camera and assaulted them there. We doubted that. Um, we had a visit by our Minister of Health, and she said, I know I'm supposed to raise this issue. When should I raise it in the plenary session? And I said, if you raise it in the plenary, the minister is going to have to say respond to you in front of his entire team, and we're going to get the party line. So when we're, we break for lunch and you walk in and you have your chit-chat with him, why don't you raise it there? Because he's a doctor. He'll understand it's a, it's a medical issue. What we want to be sure of is that this person gets medical attention. She did it that way, and he was grateful. He, he did take it seriously, and he did follow up. So sometimes if you can find a way to work with outside of the system, and not trigger the the inevitable response, the inevitable bureaucratic response, you, you can get results. That's that's great. That's great. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about the Trump administration's efforts to enlist other countries in pressuring China on unfair trade practices. How successful have they been, do you think? And how much have you two been privy to those sorts of efforts? Okay, so uh, Jeremy, if I can jump in. As we're recording this, we, we read the news that the Department of Justice in the United States, together with 12 other countries, are issuing indictments on Chinese nationals for cyber two, cyber two espionage. Nationals. It's, it's a stra- surprisingly small number, right? Well, the fact that 12 would come together, yeah, yeah. I think it's no small thing. And I'll no, tell no, you, no small thing at all. Uh, China was a typical case of game theory in which no country wanted to get ahead of the other one. So, and they would all game the system. So if the U.S. picked a fight, uh, Germany would try to profit out of that. Even within the EU, if the U.K. picked a fight, then Spain would try to profit. And and it was always, uh, everybody was always trying to game uh, China's favor. And I think it's not necessarily Trump uh, that has been able to put together this coalition. I think it's China that has been able to put together this coalition against it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I mean, some yeah, somebody Trump has done everything he can to su- sabotage it. Really, <laughs> no. So, somebody said uh, the other day to me, uh, said Trump may not be the president America deserves, but he sure is the president China deserves. That's, <laughs> can you can you attribute that quote to somebody? That's that's a pretty good one. I want to compliment them. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I will I will tell you offline. Okay, offline. Okay, great. <laughs> and I'll send him an email and let him know. <laughs> Great quote. That's that's hysterical. Uh, and what about you? My, my sense is that um, to the extent that there is um, sort of a, a degree of like-mindedness being uh, encouraged, um, it, it's really happening through um, the security people. What they you know they, they call the Five Eyes: um, Canada, United States, UK, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and spreading out from there. And um, it, 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 that does have a, a trade in commercial uh, dimension. Uh, so uh, I, I don't think on the trade side itself, I mean, Jorge, you'll have your views, but our, our conversations with the U.S. about trade have, have been very North American, with the exception of that little uh, poison pill uh, 
clause within the, the, the new agreement. So I haven't seen as much, and President Trump is not a, a coalition builder. I have been surprised too at how, how difficult it has been to find a degree of like-mindedness among um, Western countries. I, I was for one year the, the G8 Sherpa it was during the German year, uh-huh. the Heiligen Dam meeting. And at the start of the year, the Sherpas were very feisty, and we're going to talk about China, and we've got to address the issue, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the steam had gone out of that by the time that leaders met. There's a great fear of being seen to, to gang up on China or to, you know, to, to, to form a sort of a coalition against China. And that has, I think, precluded the possibility of really honest discussions about how we deal with China one-on-one. China has been remarkably successful in the last 20 years in isolating countries, even big countries like Britain and and France. Canada certainly felt that, Norway, Sweden, Australia. And it works because, as Jorge says, you know, there's competition out there. When that happens, everybody else kind of goes to the side and says, oh, you know, tough luck, you know, good luck there, uh, but doesn't really help. There's room to discuss uh, a conversation with China about uh, larger expectations that we, we salute China's rise. We're happy to see the, the the success in China, but there are expectations that go along with that. And the targeting of individual countries is something that, that concerns all of us. Uh, that conversation isn't happening, and it, it probably should. It sort of strikes me as unfair. I mean, the Obama administration was probably trying to build just such coalitions to bring everyone on, especially with respect to Chinese cyber espionage. There were no takers, but suddenly it's switched, and it seems like Trump will get unfair credit for this. Let me give you a contrarian point on that, uh, that we read a lot about, uh, Huawei, 5G, etc. During the Obama administration, uh, during during all administrations prior to President Trump, there was sort of an unwritten rule with Mexico that Mexico would do all that was possible to block Huawei from uh, building its uh, telecommunications infrastructure. That changed with President Trump. And with all his attacks on Mexicans, sort of Mexico said, well, listen, we we have no problem. We have no issues with Huawei. We don't consider ourselves a target of uh, cyber espionage. or So all of a sudden... uh, started seeing the Mexican president signing telecommunications agreements uh, with his Chinese counterpart. Where was Meng Wanzhou uh, heading when she was arrested? She was heading to Mexico. Mexico yes, so, that's interesting. Yeah. So that is something, for instance, uh, where probably the United States is worse off now with President Trump than they were before. Oh, that's, that's, that is a good, good point and very good one to raise. Uh, it's interesting. It wasn't the – there's a billion-dollar loan or rather a credit that was given specifically for purchase of Huawei telecoms equipment, right? That was for purchase of handsets. Oh, uh, handsets. Uh, but, but they were sort of uh, disincentivized uh, to participate in the infrastructure, in the telecommunication, and that was mostly in coordination with the United States. I see. Because we were neighbors, because we were integrated, uh, so on and so forth. And then in comes President Trump and in comes all the attacks on Mexicans. And and you did see a, a shift in the Mexican government, the prior Mexican government, sort of saying, "Well, why are we picking a fight with Huawei, uh, or why are we blocking Huawei when we're getting nothing uh, in return from the United States?" And, and and I repeat, as opposed to the Five Eyes, and and even as opposed to where Canada is, this Mexico doesn't necessarily consider itself a target for cyber espionage or 
where cyber uh, military options would be exercised. So we just see a, a good product, an affordable price with good financing. And we say, hey, you know, why not? Yeah. There's a lot of truth in that, Jorge. And I, I worry about the world we're going into where we'll have two, you know, rival technology systems and consumers um, will, will lose out. Britain and Canada had been outliers in the five eyes in that um, we both uh, adopted the idea of Britain first of establishing testing centers that would be financed by Huawei, but where you had independent testers testing the technology. And what attracted me about that idea is the idea of risk mitigation. The right. problem sometimes with the, the intelligence community is it's um, complete risk exclusion, close the door entirely. And that world, while it may make us feel safe, has a lot of disadvantages. It closes us off from a lot of good things that, uh, dare I say it, uh, China uh, creates, produces, and offers us. And so the risk mitigation world um, offered that, that, that benefit, and it, it, seemed, it, it seemed to be working. Canada is a few weeks away from making its, its own decision on, on 5G. I think we're coming to the end of the risk mitigation uh, experiment. Uh, I think the, the current Huawei case uh, is the nail in the coffin. And I, I think we all lose in that, in that world. That's a real pity, yeah. We, we're going to return route. to we're going to return to Huawei because obviously that is the very juicy subject at the moment. But David, just now you mentioned the poison pill in the uh, USMCA. Um, so there's a clause in the new uh, USMCA that uh, Wilbur Ross described, as you say, as a poison pill that says if either of you makes a trade pact with a non-market country, which one presumes means China, then that country can be effectively kicked out of UMSCA and the other two uh, would just uh, become a bilateral, it would become a bilateral trade pact. Is that the right understanding and how does that impact things with China? David, if I may just uh, jump in and the only thing I would say about that poison pill or my only complaint is that it was not Mexico's idea. No country was displaced from the U.S. market as much uh, as Mexico when China entered the WTO. Mexico and China are not complementary economies. We never intended to do a free trade agreement with China. So we find it brilliant. Uh, I think Canada is in a different situation and I'll let David talk it's about that. It's very advantageous to Mexico, in other words, yeah, right. And David, how do you feel about that? So this has or been very controversial in Canada, and the government has been criticized um, for this. I, I've long wondered when this day would come, when um, in, in a world that is much more difficult for Canada, our relationship with the United States is changing. Uh, it forces us in many ways to have what I call a real foreign policy, as opposed to one where the main considerations, security, and prosperity are really guaranteed through our relationship with the United States, we need to make much tougher choices. So in a way that, that, that this is the chill wind of, of our future. Um, Canadians are having a really hard time. They're tremendously distracted by Donald Trump. They, no offense, they don't generally like him very much. And they, they not, find not it incre <laughs> incredibly hard to read. Um, and one of the problems they have is they, they you and the rest of us, David. <laughs> <laughs> they underestimate. I'm a very uh, polite Canadian. Um, they underestimate um, his um, follow-through intentions. 
and this this is going to get tested sooner rather than later, or was going to get tested sooner rather than later. I think the uh, Hmong arrest in Vancouver has kind of put that on the um, on the sidelines for a while, as did the very strange approach by the Trudeau government which was to attempt to sell China on what they described as a progressive trade deal, which had you know, issues of gender, labor, the environment, uh, completely alien to the Chinese. Um, the Prime Minister embarrassed himself when he was in uh, Beijing earlier in the year. It, it went nowhere. So um, that has, has sort of been put on the s- sidelines, but the issue is still there. Uh, Australia is ahead of us in this list. You know, China is their number one economic partner. The United States is their security guarantor. And they're already facing the really tough decisions that come with living with two uh, very uh, powerful but contending partners. So, again, I see this as, as the, the, first, uh, the first wave of many that's really introducing this, this new world we're, we're um, getting into. Jorge, you're not limited by that Canadian politeness. Uh, apparently, you've made no secret whatsoever about how you personally feel about our president. Uh, you've also, though, not been shy at all about advocating on Twitter, at, at the very least, uh, for your, your support for a much tougher policy on China, on when, especially when it comes to unfair trade practices. I think you have a lot of, of, of people who would agree with you on that. But how far are you willing to see Trump go on pushing back on China? At what point do you see it becoming simply counterproductive, you know, threatening broader global stability, foreclosing, you know, or at least maybe seriously complicating cooperation in areas where bilateral cooperation is really essential? Where not just bilateral, but multilateral cooperation, especially on things like the environment and you know the other actors pressing the case against China uh, who need to cooperate with it, like the EU. Surely they they see there's a possibility of going too far. Where is that? Well, uh, as you will say, I hate President Trump and everything he stands for. There is no redeeming quality in my eyes uh, (laughs) regarding President Trump. None. Uh, Nevertheless, I feel awful to say every time that when it comes to China, I like what his administration is doing. Now, uh, would it be only President Trump that would uh, address uh, China in that way? Probably not. Probably no, no. any the U.S. president would have been. Yeah, a Clinton administration would have been. Probably, harder. but there are there are a couple of things that uh, President Trump is was crazy enough uh, to start that did change the game. Now I don't necessarily agree with those, which was to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement and to talk directly to Kim Jong-un. So those were the two things that I think China used uh, to sort of leverage its position in all other issues is, well, yes, but you need us for climate change, and yes, you need, but you need us for the two Koreas. And in comes this president that says, oh, no, I don't care about climate change. And about Korea, by the way, oh, I'll talk to them directly. So all of a sudden, China finds itself in a position in which they don't have as much leverage as they were used to. And then he goes on and starts uh, doing all that we know, uh, tariffs, 232s, 301s. And I do think uh, that is the right way to approach China. And and it embarrasses me to no end to say that I was a Peter Navarro before Peter Navarro was uh, fashionable. (laughs) And that was my view of China uh, when I was Mexico's ambassador to China, because the the fact of the matter is China does game the system. China is indeed protectionist. China will not cede anything. And it is very frustrating to try to deal with them. And they will keep saying win-win. And of course, we don't have any uh, reason to want uh, trade surpluses. But they do game the system and they 
have no incentive to change. Uh, so I'm not sure they will change with President Trump, but at the very least, it's being acknowledged as such. And if nothing else, Mexico wins in this case because by the United States addressing this imbalance, uh, it opens opportunities for Mexico in the U.S. market, even if it's not vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Now, how, how far should they go? In a sense, Kaiser, one of the things I like about this administration is that they have no China hands. Now, that, of course, is not the politically correct uh, thing to say because uh, <laughs> you're, you're never supposed to be in, in, in support of ignorance. <laughs> but I think uh, China hands, uh, whether they'd be the Geithners, uh, Hank Paulsons, I mean, they, they create a, a franchise in which they're the, the ones who have to look out for the Chinese point of view. And in essence... Uh, the Chinese use that to their advantage. They game that. And nothing has, uh, I think, uh, thrown the Chinese more off their game than knowing that there is no China hand they can appeal to, uh, to to try to help the U.S. administration understand the Chinese perspective. And something that I always told my Chinese counterparts is that I would say China wants, in my case, a Mexican ambassador in China to explain to Mexico how Chinese are and a Chinese ambassador in Mexico to explain to Mexicans how Chinese are. So who explains to the Chinese what Mexicans' priorities are? And that's the thing they never realize, that they are so worried about other uh, people, other countries understanding them, that they never try to understand other countries. Jorge, by the way, is the founding president of the organization Diplomats Against Diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was a career, I'm sorry, a political uh, appointee, right, which as right. most career diplomats would say is a reason why they don't like political appointees. <laughs> David, what about you? Do you think that there's, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm less familiar with your, your positions on, on China's trade practices and so forth, but... Uh, I don't know how you you feel about uh, the Trump administration, so maybe uh, take take a shot at that yourself. What do you, what do you think? So one of the things I find really interesting, and I, I'm with Jorge on that, and and I've written a lot about the need for Canada uh, to grow up when it comes to China, to see uh, China as all of a piece. And and the current prime minister, of course, is the son of the prime minister Pierre Trudeau, who uh, helped to. In, you know, introduced the formula that, that enabled Canadian recognition and recognition by other countries back in 1970. He was close to Zhou Enlai, met Mao, revered China. So our current prime minister grew up in a family that had impeccable China ties and I think has a demonstrated a degree of, of naivete when it comes to, when it comes to China. Uh, what's happened, I think, particularly with the, um, uh, the trade war, is that it exposed a, a particular weakness of Xi Jinping in that it's engendered uh, criticism, muted somewhat, but criticism in the Chinese system that he's pushing too far too fast. And so that's, that's a vulnerability that's, that's, worth, um, th that's worth thinking about uh, as we go forward. Canada right now is dealing with this, you know, the detention of a couple of Canadians and icy cold relationship with China, criticism from the government and from the, the state-controlled media. And um, it, it, the, a constellation of issues, Iran sanctions, extradition treaty with the U.S., detention of citizens, but that all have something common at the base. And that is, as, as Jorge said, the su suggestion that China has been a free rider in so many respects. We've, we've, we've come to uh, this point before 
we wring our hands, and then China's given a pass. And the one thing that President, right, uh, President Trump might be getting right is that maybe we don't give China a pass. If indeed there is a, you know, there's a problem uh, when it comes to Iran sanctions and, and Huawei, and that's what's been alleged in, in courts, then we follow this to its, to its conclusion. That has uh, the Canadian China-watching community afraid, too. And there have been calls to, you know, maybe we should have just let Madame Meng go. Why do we need this? But if one of the results of this whole um, crisis in Canada-China relations is the message that China is going to be held accountable for what it does, and if one of the outcomes of, you know, of the charges by the Justice Department is similar, that's not a bad thing. Right. This is a good point, I think, to bring up the big juicy question <laughs> that I've been wanting to ask you, David, which is obviously about Huawei and uh, its chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou. Um, what do you make of this arrest and what's going to happen next, do you think? So one of the things that I was always fascinated and, and struck by the fact that China doesn't understand the Canada-U.S. relationship. And they see it as purely a power relationship. Canada is a vassal state. You, you see the world uh, you know, from your own perspective. And then a lot of the countries around China act like vassal states. There is a power dimension in the Canada-U.S. relationship, but it's not omnipresent. It's a very complex relationship linked by families, shared interests, shared culture um, that, go, that transcends uh, even government. And at the, but at the level of government and administration, the relations are close, cordial, and professional. And when an extradition request comes through, it's looked at by professionals in our uh, Department of Justice. And uh, uh, if a case is sufficiently strong, uh, there's an arrest. And then there's a long process that Madam Meng is already on, which, A, she's already had her day in court when it comes to a bail hearing, and she's free in Vancouver on bail, living in one of her two houses there. She has a top-flight legal team, and they will. The, the next step is a request from uh, the U.S. government for formal extradition. A case has to be made uh, to the Minister of Justice in Canada. And then there is a possibility for judicial review of that. So it's a professional, transparent process. And what this gets to, and what Canadians sometimes forget, is that as a middle power in a world that is sometimes dominated by superpowers, we rely on systems like this. We rely on rule of law. We rely on a degree of transparency and predictability. So we have a stake in uh, carrying this out, this, this process out rigorously and transparently. And I'm very proud and, and quite convinced that we're doing that. So I think the arrest is real. We've been thrown by President Trump's statement that he might just intervene and, you know, uh, if he can get right, a trade right. deal and free man among. That, that was uh, disastrous. At first, I thought the problem would be on the Chinese side, that it would feed their suspicion. But it's also fed a lot of discontent on the Canadian side. And a questioning imagine, yeah. of institutions like the extradition system, like a sanctions system. I mean, sanctions are messy and controversial, but they're better than the alternative, which is war sometimes. Um, it, it's fed some discontent that really undermines um, the nature and the system that, that uh, Canada depends on for its uh, stability. David, you authored a book uh, that I apologize for not having actually read yet. It's called Middle Power, Middle Kingdom. Uh, you wrote it right after your posting in Beijing, and uh, you talk about what Canada had 
done right and what Canada had done wrong in its relationship with China. Can you maybe give us a quick and dirty version of, of what that book was, its central thesis? I, I wanted to do two things. One is to talk about the China relationship, and I, I had been watching it for, for 25 years. Uh, the other thing which was dear to my heart was to talk about what the Foreign Service does, because I've noticed a decline in, in the, you know, what we might call civics education in Canada. By the end of my posting, people didn't really understand how government worked and what you know, diplomats did. So I wanted to uh, share with Canadians um, what life was like for, for someone working in a, in a China embassy. But I also wanted to talk about the China relationship as, you know, in the space of my career, it had become clearly our second most important relationship. And I'd noticed um, a tendency on the part of one of our major parties, the Liberals, to see China as um, the, the golden future. Uh, Prime Minister Kretchen used to say, you know, we were China's closest friend. Um, and on the part of the conservatives, so overblown on the part of the liberals, and on the part of the conservatives that China was the sum of all fears. And I said that going forward, we would absolutely need to uh, have a, uh, a po as positive as possible a relationship with China, but that involved um, graduating to a, a new level of competence when it came to managing the relationship and a new level of maturity in seeing China uh, as all of a piece. So a source of great opportunity, but... Uh, a, a really uh, worrisome tangle of, of problems and challenges. And that that was uh, managing China was a first step in navigating a future that is, is I think, much more uncertain for us. Mm, absolutely. Uh, Jorge, one last question. Your new president, Lopez Obrador, has proposed a kind of Latin American Marshall Plan that he hopes will address the root causes of things like Central American migration. And he's talking a total size of $30 billion. There's an expectation that a good chunk of that money would come from the United States, which has an obvious interest in sol solving some of these problems. But in a New York Times report from last week, officials interviewed said, if Mr. Trump cannot be persuaded, Mexican officials said in interviews that they would remind him that there's another player in the region willing to step into the vacuum, China. What do you make of this? Okay, at first sight, Jeremy, I would tell you that's the typical uh, hubristic uh, reaction of incoming administrations, not just in Mexico, but throughout the region. Uh, new presidents always think they will be able, because they are special, to, to establish a new relationship with China, and it'll work to everyone's advantage. They are soon thereafter disabused by the Chinese, and things go back to normal, uh, and that's the end of that. Nevertheless, uh, the one thing that I think is uh, worth noticing is that when he brings in China to the equation, keep in mind that these uh, Central American countries, particularly uh, Honduras and Guatemala, are two countries that still have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Uh, the U.S. has been uh, very vociferous about its displeasure with Panama, with Dominican Republic, and with El Salvador for switching from Taiwan to China. So I think uh, in that sense, I will give credit to the incoming administration in Mexico, to a new administration in sort of telling the United States either put up or shut up. <laughs> well put. David, Jorge, both of you, it's just been wonderful to talk to both of you. Uh, for take, thanks for, so much for taking the time uh, to join us. Uh, let's go on to recommendations. Uh, but before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you enjoy our podcast and the other shows in the network, like the fantastic Tech Buzz China and uh, China Econ Talk, and if you like the wide-ranging content that's on SupChina, brought to you by Jeremy's team, 
the best thing that you can do for us is sign up to SupChina Access. Your support makes it possible for us to keep bringing you all that reporting, all these conversations, the videos, the whole lot of it. Uh, now, let's move on to recommendations. And uh, Jeremy, it is our habit to begin with you. And so why break it? What do okay, you have for us this week? Uh, I'd like to recommend uh, an essay in the London Review of Books by James Meek called The Club and the Mob. And he's a former Guardian journalist. And it's uh, an essay really about the uh, destruction in front of our eyes of the news media over the last decade or two. Yeah, well, that's a grim, grim topic indeed. Uh, we'll, we're, we're doing our we're, are doing our part to to save it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, thanks. That's a great recommendation, Jorge. What do you have for us? I'm going to recommend Mexico City for Easter break oh, uh, oh. as a destination. It's uh, particularly for your U.S. Uh, <laughs> audience. It's a close direct flight. Uh, it's very affordable. Great hotels, great food, and I don't mean just Mexican. I mean great restaurant scene, great uh, service. Very affordable, and during Easter break, everybody from Mexico City leaves, so the city is quiet, great museums, so it's a it's a quick, cheap, affordable, uh, very entertaining vacation uh, for Easter break. Jeremy, what do you say? Let's go. Uh, I've never been. Good, yeah, just I'm, down I'm the there. road. Yeah, let's 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 do it. My Easter break. Yeah, great idea. I didn't know that it was vacated during Easter. Where Everybody in Mexico City leaves for the Easter vacation. And literally, there is no traffic. The museums are empty. Uh, the restaurants, you you can uh, get tables. And, and the thing about Mexico is that it's relatively cheap. I mean, uh, especially if you come in with dollars. Uh, so it's a very affordable. It's I mean, for most places in the United States, it's a three and a half hour flight. I, I, I mean, yeah. at most. And... And it's a different language, different culture. So you feel as if you've gone to Europe, but you're in the neighborhood. There's no uh, time difference. Uh, so it's an easy vacation that makes you feel you, you went for a long trip. Debemos de estudiar español, mi amigo. Anyway, um, I'm going to uh, move on. That's a great recommendation. I'm, we're going we're gonna to do that. David, what do you have for us? Gee, I was going to say Mexico City at Easter. I've got, no, <laughs> I, I, I hardly endorse that, but I'd say you, you want to have Jorge uh, curate the visit for you. Um, I'll, I'll go with a book, um, one that I've just read. It's the, uh, the journals of a woman named Dorothy Day, who was in, in her youth, uh, uh, you know, uh, an intellectual in the, the Greenwich Village crowd, knew uh, Eugene O'Neill uh, and um, Diego Rivera, um, later became... Uh, the founder of something called the, the Catholic Worker, uh, which was a, a radical, very progressive uh, movement uh, to house and help the homeless, the poor. It led think thinking about uh, causes, foreign policy issues uh, with a, a very strong pacifist bent. And someone who ended up uh, after her death as a, a candidate for sainthood. But someone who met just about everybody there was to meet in the course of the 20th century in a fascinating wow. uh, collection of, uh, uh, of uh, memories. Dorothy Day. And the book is called The Duty of Delight. Ah, sounds terrific. I'll put it on my list. Uh, I'm going to go with an Amazon Prime original television show called Patriot. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I, I, it's, just, it's, it's a quirky dark comedy about uh, a spy family, uh, darkly funny, wonderfully nutty. Just enjoy it. If you like the, the show Barry on HBO, you might really dig this. It's, 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 it's great. Second season just, uh, just aired on, on, on Amazon Prime. So uh, with that, 
David and Jorge, thanks so much for both of you for joining us. It's, yeah. uh, thank, thank you, you very much. Great time. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank Jeremy, you, Jeremy. Uh, thank you for putting up with six episodes in one week, Jeremy. That was uh, pretty, <laughs> I know, it was a lot taking time away. We needed to edit the red paper and do all this other stuff at the year end. But uh, thanks, man. You were a real trooper. Thanks. All right. Talk soon. All right. Bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by Jason McRonald and me. Special thanks this week to Jim Millward, who was kind enough to let us convert his dining room into our little peripatetic studio. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Tyson Seneca Business Week, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, Chinese Econ Talk, and Talk and Talk. More great shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.